Hello, and welcome to the Hope Brooklyn Weekly Sermon Podcast. Hope Brooklyn is a community of faith in Brooklyn, New York, that believes wherever you are in your spiritual journey, there's room at the table. Thanks for listening, and enjoy this week's sermon. All right, deep breath. New series, Story Time with Jesus. We are looking at the parables of Jesus throughout his ministry. Now, you may have heard that word before, parable. What is it? Uh, it can be defined a couple different ways. From the Aramaic, it simply means a riddle. A parable is a riddle. It also has been defined by certain scholars as a, a dark saying, a, a confusing saying, something that's obscured. Or one of my favorite definitions um, is a weapon of controversy. I like that. A parable is a story that is in fact a weapon of controversy. C.H. Dodd puts it this way, who's a New Testament scholar. He goes, at its simplest, the parable is a metaphor or simile drawn from nature or common life, arresting the hearer by its vividness or strangeness and leaving the mind in sufficient doubt about its precise application to tease it into active thought. I love that. It's a simple story. It's drawn with simple metaphor, a simple simile from common life. However, it's very, even though it's simple language, it's very vivid and it's very strange. And it arrests us. Its vividness, its strangeness arrests our minds, confuses us, and therefore leaves us in doubt as to how we apply it. It's a story without a moral. It's not an Aesop fable. It's not something that we wish it was. Jesus doesn't explain it necessarily. It's a story without a moral. It's not a simple allegory. It's not like this means that. It has some elements of that. So there's, you know, an example would be when Jesus goes, the kingdom of heaven is like yeast. All right, so that's an allegory. The kingdom of heaven is yeast. But then he goes on to explain what he means and you're left thinking, well, how does that work? There's, it's a story without a clear sense of a way forward. But, and this is important, after you hear a parable, it unequivocally demands a response. Even though it leaves you in doubt as to what to do or what's your way forward, it demands that you do something. Or even if you choose to do nothing, that in itself is a response. It's a story that demands we reimagine the world. So parables are called apocalyptic stories. Now apocalyptic is one of those words that's totally just fallen by the wayside. It's been co-opted so many different ways. In the simplest way, apocalyptic is the Greek word apocalypsis, which means revelation. So the last book of the Bible, the revelation of John, is the apocalypsis of John. It just simply means um, we are receiving a revelation. I love the way Stanley Hauerwas puts it when he defines apocalyptic. He says, it is the disruption of time by God's time so that our time may be redeemed. It's the disruption of time by God's time so that our time may be redeemed. A parable disrupts our world with God's world so that our world can be reimagined or redeemed. And so as we move forward in this series, looking at various parables, various stories of Jesus, I'm gonna work hard to, to refrain from giving you easy answers. I'm gonna work hard to refrain from doing the thinking for you, which I know is hard because so much of our Western culture, um, and we can't escape it, and that's, that's, that's not necessarily a, a judging of it, but it's so much entertainment, right? Entertainment, which is tell me what to think, entertain me. But Jesus doesn't do that with his parables. 
He offers up a story and he goes, let the one who has ears, let them hear. So I'm going to work hard to refrain, but I'm still going to pull out some observations from it. Cool? All right, so we're going to kick off today with the parable that describes why Jesus teaches in parables. It's the meta parable, so to speak. So we're in Matthew chapter 13. If you have your Bibles or smartphones, open up there. If not, uh, we're going to put it on the screen behind us. Matthew chapter 13, we're going to read verses 1 through 13. So what it reads. That same day, Jesus went out of the house and sat by the lake. Such large crowds gathered around him that he got into a boat and he sat in it while all the people stood on the shore. And then he told them many things in parables, saying, A farmer went out to sow a seed. Now as he was scattering the seed, some fell along the path, and the birds came and ate it up. Some fell on rocky places where it did not have much soil. It sprang up quickly because the soil was shallow, but when the sun came up, the plants were scorched and they withered because they had no root. Other seed fell among thorns, which grew up and choked the plants. But still other seed fell on good soil, where it produced a crop, a hundred, sixty, or thirty times what was sown. The one who has ears, let them hear. Now the disciples came to him and they asked, why do you speak to the people in parables? And he replied, the knowledge of the secrets of the kingdom of heaven has been given to you, but not to them. So whoever has will be given more, and they will have an abundance. But whoever does not have, even what they have will be taken from them. This is why I speak to them in parables. Because though seeing, they do not see. And though hearing, they do not hear or understand. Now there are multiple layers to this text, to this story. And we're going to approach each of them in due course. The first one, and I think an important one, that is often left out when we consider Jesus' parables is the context. The context. I, I heard a scholar say once, a text without a context is a pretext, which I think explains a lot about our modern media industry. Well, you can have a sound bite, you can have a text, but if it's not within the context by which it was given, we can make it a pretext. We can make it say whatever we want. And so if we want to understand this parable, this dark saying of Jesus, we need to understand the context. So we open up chapter 13 with this line, this very, we can probably, you know, overlook it. It says, that same day, Jesus went out and sat beside a sea. So alarm should be going off in our head. What same day? That same day. Well, what day has happened? When you read back chapter 12, you realize it's been a very controversial day for Jesus. It started on the Sabbath. It's the day of the Sabbath. And uh, early on in chapter 12, Jesus and his disciples are walking through a grain field. And of course, as you know, according to Jewish tradition, you do no work on the Sabbath. But we're told that his disciples are hungry. And so as they walk, uh, they pluck heads of grain and eat them. Well, that draws the ire of the Pharisees. The Pharisees are basically me. They're the pastors of the day. And so I got really angry at Jesus. And I said, well, what are they doing? This is the Sabbath. They can't pluck grain on the Sabbath. And Jesus is like, okay, I see what you're saying, but let's take it back to, to our own Bible, our holy scriptures. And we look at sort of the exemplar of the Jewish people, King David, hundreds of years ago. We see that David did this. 
when David and his men were hungry, they entered into the synagogue and they ate the bread of the presence of which it is not lawful for them to eat. And God seemed to be okay with that because they were hungry. And he, and he asked them further, he goes, don't our own priests do that? They eat the bread of the, of the presence? So Jesus is attempting at first to point out the duplicity in our thinking, how we focus on one thing and totally miss a bunch of other stuff. In the same ways that we can be really, really loud about certain matters of injustice while totally complicit in other systems of injustice without seeing it. In the same way that when we look at the, the evolution of the church in the West, maybe 20 or 30 years ago, um, our generation, or at least our parents' generation, were really, really loud about sexual ethics and maybe a little quieter about other topics, like loving the neighbor. And now we're super loud about loving the neighbor, but we've gone really quiet about sexual ethics. In the same way, Jesus is like, look, you gotta widen your vision a little bit here. Widen your vision. So then the day proceeds. It's already started controversially. The day proceeds. He's in a synagogue. Um, there's a man in the synagogue with a withered hand. And it says that everyone's looking at Jesus to see what he'll do. And he looks around and he's kind of angry. And he goes, what is the Sabbath made for? Was the Sabbath made for humans or were humans made for the Sabbath? What's he asking? He's asking, what's more important to God? Does God care more about the Sabbath itself or does God care more about how the Sabbath serves you, his creatures? And he wants them to answer, humans, of course. The Sabbath is important only insofar as it teaches God's creatures about God and the relationship between the two of them. And so the Pharisees don't answer him. They don't say anything. And then Jesus looks at the man with the withered hand. He goes, stretch out your hand. And he does, and it's healed. He heals a man. And then we read that the Pharisees are so angry, they leave thinking about how to kill him. And before we cast judgment on the Pharisees, I would ask us to consider our own ways that Jesus is inviting us into a relationship of life abundant life, but we're too caught up in our own ways of thinking, our own patterns that we reject it and even get angry at it. We misinterpret it as him destroying the very structures of our life. The day proceeds that same day. And now Jesus is in a house and he's teaching. And as he's teaching people, his family shows up. His mother and his brothers were told are outside. And they're asking for him. They're saying, hey, Jesus, your mom and, and your brothers and sisters, they want to see you outside. And Jesus looks at everyone in the house and he goes, who are my mother and my brothers and my sisters? And then he goes, you. Those who do the will of my father in heaven are my mother and my sisters and my brothers. Now, this is controversial because the family unit is central to Jewish identity. The first commandment to a Jewish person is to get married and have a, give birth to a Jewish person. The, the family unit is like the building block of the Jewish people. It goes family, and then it goes wider clan, and then it goes your tribe, the 12 tribes, and then it goes Israel as a whole. But the family is central. And Jesus just seemingly dismantled that or totally redefined it, depending on how you look at it. And so on this day, on this very, very controversial day, Jesus has 
utterly dismantled or significantly redefined both commandment four and commandment five. Honor the Sabbath and honor your father and mother. It's almost like, you know, the the metaphor could be Jesus is renovating a house, right? And his architectural vision is so unlike any other architectural vision of his day. It's so different. And so people are starting to freak out saying, what are you doing, rabbi? How are you renovating this house called Israel, this house called God's family? And so there are two camps forming. Either he is a total anarchist, he's disrespecting the traditions of his people, he's disregarding everything, or he sees something different that other people don't see. That's the context. And then on that controversial day, Jesus goes out to teach and a great crowd follows, which makes sense. He gets in a boat and he tells them this riddle. Brief recap of the riddle. A farmer goes out to sow seed and he chucks it everywhere. (laughs) He just throws that seed. He throws it on a road um, and the birds come down and they eat it up. He throws it on very thin soil and it springs up quickly because there's no, nowhere for it to, to grow deep and grow roots. But because it sprung up so quickly, when the sun comes up, it totally scorches it and withers it. He throws it on, on thorny soil, so it starts to grow, but as it grows, so too do the thorns, and it ends up choking its life, so no fruit comes up. And then he throws it on good soil, and on that good soil, there produces a tremendous yield of fruit. Three observations about this story. Number one, the inefficiency of the farmer. This farmer is super inefficient. (laughs) He's just like like saying, seed over there and seed over there and you get some seed and you get some seed. Just throwing it everywhere. Now, it is, as scholars have pointed out, it's in accordance with ancient farming methods. In our modern farming methods, we plow the land first, and then we plant seed. In ancient, you uh, sowed the seed first, and then you plowed it. However, every farmer listening to Jesus would know that this farmer, this sower of seed, is bad. (laughs) He's just throwing. You you could tell that that's a road, and there's going to be no seed that grows there. But apparently, this farmer doesn't know that, or doesn't believe it. So he's just throwing seed everywhere. So you can view it as um, a very careless farmer, or you could say that there's a plethora of seed, that this farmer has a Mary Poppins bag of seed, and it just, there's more and more and more. And so he's just throwing it everywhere. So what's compelling the farmer is not necessarily the conservation of the seed, nor um, strong strategy for how to plant He's not, you know, sizing up the earth and being like, okay, this is the right time, this is the right place, seed for you. He's just throwing it. What's compelling the farmer is to sow as much seed as possible into the land. All land, doesn't even matter. When I I get an image of this farmer, I think of my older brother, Matthew, at a K&W cafeteria. Anybody know K&W cafeterias? One person from the, yes, from the South, there we go. So K&W cafeterias, are magical places. (laughs) They are, I want you to think like a school cafeteria, but for people who are 60 and up. 
All right. So basically, if you ever go to a K&W cafeteria, you have to get there either before four or after seven. If you get there in between four and seven, you're not going to find a place to sit. All right. Because it is just jam packed. Um, and I don't know if what this says about us, but you know, my brothers and I, I have two brothers. Um, the tradition was in our household when we graduated high school, we could choose any restaurant that we wanted to eat at. Any restaurant. So of course, all three of us were like, Ruth Chris, no. Olive Garden, I don't think so. We're going to the K&W cafeteria. <laughs> Literally, that's where we ate, guys. Um, man, their seven-layer salads were the best because they're a true Southern salad. A lot of mayonnaise, a little bit of cheese, and a little bit of lettuce. It's perfect. It's perfect. <laughs> but uh, my brother, my, my older brother, Matthew, he is just an excitable person. So like you get there and you get your tray and you start going down the line. And you're like, mm, that looks good. Okay, I'll have some of that. Matthew gets two trays. <laughs> and he's just like, no sense of scarcity, no sense of budget. He's like, oh, that looks good. Talk me into this. Why should I get, you know, the, the spinach fettuccine? Okay, yeah, no, I'll get some of that. Two things of seven layer salad. He just piles it on. No sense of budget, no sense of scarcity, no sense of conservation. You get to the end, it doesn't matter what it costs. Let's charge it. Matthew is just going in. And I think about Matthew farming, right? He's just pulling out seed and just throwing it. Doesn't even matter what's gonna happen tomorrow. Just throwing as much seed as possible. This farmer is inefficient. Second observation, the infertility of most of the land. Most of the land where the farmer throws the seed produces no fruit. The road, it's ground so hard that the seed is eaten before it has a chance to sink in. The thin soil, it's so thin that it produces a temporary shock of growth much faster than we would expect, but it has no roots. It hasn't had time for it to grow deep before it's become public, and so it's scorched by the sun. The thorns, who grow up with it. So these outside forces that end up choking the life of the seed. Most of the soil is really, really um, infertile. But then there's this good soil that produces a tremendous yield, 160, 30 times. And that's point three. If the farmer is inefficient and most of the land is infertile, the third observation is that there's an inordinate yield from the good soil. All commentators point out, and if you were a first century listener, you would have heard it, that a, that a yield of 100 times what was sown, 60 times what was sown, even 30 times what was sown, is more than the wildest imaginations of any farmer in that day and age. Though most of the soil does not produce fruit, what little soil does produces so much, it just sort of outweighs the rest of the land that doesn't. More than makes up for the lack. I kind of imagine in my head, um, a, a, like a, you know, a, a, a plot of land and 75% of it is just desert, even though it's not, but it's like nothing. And then 25% is like a Dr. Seuss book. You know what I'm talking about? Like from one speck, there's just trees coming up everywhere and fruit. That's kind of what's getting at. That's, that's the image, the picture that Jesus is painting. And so, of course, everyone listening is like, what is, what is this? <laughs> what is this? 
especially on this controversial day. And that's it. Jesus doesn't explain it. He leaves. And he goes inside a house with his disciples, and his disciples ask him, why do you speak to the people in parables? Why do you speak in such confusing riddles? And Jesus responds even more confusingly, to you has been given to know the mysteries of the kingdom of heaven, but to them it has not been given. For whoever has, more will be given and they will overflow. But whoever does not have, whatever he has will be taken away from him. Interesting. So apparently for those who have, more is going to be given and they're going to overflow. But whoever does not have, even what they think they have is going to be taken away. And as you're turning this in your mind, suddenly it dawns on you how this parallels with the story. The three infertile soils, what happens if the growth is taken away from them? The birds ate it off the ground and took it away. The sun scorched it and took it away. The thorns grew up with it and choked it and took it away. It seems to say, uh, it seems to suggest that there are forces in this world that are hostile and antagonistic to this seed growing. There are forces hostile and antagonistic to this seed growing. However, when you look at the good soil, the Dr. Seuss soil, where the seed takes root, what happens? The yield is 100 times, 60 times, 30 times. More is given it from such miraculous places that the fruit is disproportionate to the amount of seed that was planted. So this is why I speak in parables, says Jesus. Because seeing, the people do not really see. And hearing, they don't really listen or understand. Now that reference is directly to Isaiah 6, the prophet Isaiah, who in chapter 6, he's standing in the throne room of God and he's beholding the holiness and the splendor of the Lord. And the Lord goes, who's going to go for us? And Isaiah says, I'll go, send me. And the, the message that God gives, he goes, go give this message, but recognize that the people have fat hearts, they have clogged ears, and they have pasted eyes. So they're going to see, but they're not really going to see. They're not going to understand it. They're going to hear, but they're not going to really listen. Otherwise, if they did, they would turn to me and I would heal them. The one who has ears, let him hear. Recap. Jesus has been creating controversy. He is, to most eyes, demolishing the very structures that have held God's people together the very structures that have been in place for a very long time. But he's doing it in an interesting way, right? He's dishonoring the Sabbath, but he's saying hungry humans eat food. God desires that. He's dishonoring the Sabbath, but he's saying humans are healed on the Sabbath. That's what God desires. He's dishonoring honor your father and mother, but he's giving a new family to those who are orphaned. So he's either disrespecting it or he's totally redefining it. And then on this controversial day, he tells a story about this miracle seed 
and this reckless farmer who throws the miracle seed everywhere. And most of the places where the seed lands bears no fruit. It's taken away from it. But where it does take root, it grows just as recklessly as the heart of the farmer who threw it. And then the disciples ask, why such confusing riddles? Why not just plain speech? Because the knowledge of the kingdom hasn't been given to them. It's been given to you. Which we should then ask, well, why have the mysteries of the kingdom been given to the disciples and not the rest of the crowds? What separates the disciples and the crowds? One thing, literally just one thing. It's a very obvious thing. A response. The farmer's throwing the seed. Jesus is giving life. Jesus is inviting all to follow him. But whereas the disciples said yes and continue to say yes, the crowd hasn't responded yet. Earlier, I likened Jesus to an architect who's bringing a new architectural vision to what it means to be the people of God. Anna and I just recently got back from a honeymoon and uh, one of the places we visited was Barcelona. And there's a architect in Barcelona, if you've ever been, or if you haven't been, um, named Anthony Gaudi, or Gaudi, I'm definitely not saying his name right. And uh, he's a really famous hero of Barcelona. He's credited with some of the most remarkable buildings, uh, like Park Güell, Casa Batillo, and probably most famously um, is the Sagrada Familia, which I got some pictures. That is the Sagrada Familia. It's still incomplete. Um, it should be completed in 2026, which is 100 years after his death, his death. Now you look at that and you think, that's the magic kingdom. <laughs> that's not a cathedral. It's not a church. Words and pictures can't describe how massive and how intricate that place is. And what's so fascinating about the architectural vision of Gaudí is that his lines and his styles are very inconsistent with the vision of his day. He doesn't adopt the normal Gothic architecture. He does something completely different. And as Anna and I were touring Barcelona, before we went into any of his buildings, especially this one, as we were touring it and we were seeing it from afar, our, the words that were coming to our mind were very judgmental ones. Like, how ostentatious. How presumptuous of this guy. The, the split-second decision I was making is, this is a man who does not love the Lord. This is a man who wants to show off his architectural prowess. And of course, in that day and age, what you do it on are cathedrals. This is a arrogant man. This is a presumptuous man. We even wondered as we walked, is the word gaudy derived from his name? <laughs> it's not, by the way. It's an older Latin word. <laughs> and then we toured the Sagrada Familia. That is to say, we entered in the space. And as we got closer, we realized that what appeared as ridiculous flourishes in the outside were actually leaves intricate, meticulous leaves representing the Garden of Edency. What, what appeared as a presumptuous tower was actually a cypress tree, which represents wisdom and solitude. And, there, and the bulbs were, were doves representing saved souls. 
in the gospel. And then there's these like orb-like structures throughout uh, the edifice. And actually, these orb-like structures are fruit native to the Catalonian region, representing the fruit of the gospel. You, in, you enter the space, and whereas you expect to see in the basilica and cathedrals, you expect to see statues and paintings, there's nothing. It's empty space. Because Gaudí says that the space itself is the protagonist. When we enter into God, we enter into the silent whisper that met Elijah. The, the columns, go back one, the columns look like trees. So when you stare up, you see this canopy of trees, like a garden scene. The light is perfectly situated such that on, I think the west side, I could get that wrong, but like on one side, it's all reds and yellows and oranges. On the other side, it's all blues and greens. And then you go to the front and there's this one single statue. It's the crucifix of Jesus. Next slide. And it's simply him surrounded by this parasol with 50 lights representing Pentecost and then hanging grapes and wheat representing the Lord's Supper. It is the Sagrada Familia. When it's done, it will be one meter shorter than the tallest mountain in Barcelona because according to Gaudí, no works of man should surpass the works of God. And then on the main door by which people will come in and worship is the Lord's Prayer in Catalonian, backgrounded by the Lord's Prayer in hundreds of other languages. Friends, I walked into this space and I wept. I wept. It was the most beautiful cathedral I had ever been in. And what every detail, every detail was derived from nature and from the gospel. What I interpreted as arrogance, because it was so unlike anything else of the architectural standards of his day, was in fact humility and reverence. As Gaudi constructed a temple, constructed a cathedral faithful to the God he worships and reads about in scripture. Or as he says in this little um, workshop of his, originality consists in returning to the origin. <sighs> originality consists in returning to the origin. So misunderstood because he was in fact closer to God. <laughs> and I never would have known that. I would have thought he's an arrogant, pompous architect unless I entered in, unless I responded, said yes. Whereas on the outside, the Sagrada Familia was this dark riddle and Gaudi himself subjected to a verdict of arrogance and pride when I said yes and entered in. The riddle was explained, maybe. The secrets were given to me, maybe. And I viewed this man in an entirely different light. It's an astonishing thought that the whole basis why we are here stems from a story, a historical story about a poor carpenter, a poor craftsman from a region of no importance 2,000 years ago. Think about this. Strip it away from all the, the halos and, and all that stuff. It stems from a story of a poor carpenter from a 
nowhere region 2,000 years ago. Judea, there's nothing happening in Judea. That's not Rome. That's not the center where culture is formed. He dies with his 12 closest followers having abandoned him. He dies absolutely alone. You might even say he dies on a single patch of soil. But from that single solitary patch of soil has produced a yield of billions upon billions of followers of which I count myself among them, who say my life has been utterly transformed by this poor carpenter. Who say I see the world entirely different now in a brand new light. From this single solitary spot has produced a yield far beyond 160 or 30 times. And the charge has always been made. It's still made. It might be made by some of you. It's that on some days it's made by me. What a silly story. What a silly story. It's so confusing. It's such a dark saying, such a controversial figure. How ostentatious to say that a Jewish carpenter is the son of God. How arrogant, how prideful to say from this man comes life in abundance to all creation, to all humankind. How arrogant. And I say, you just got to stop looking from afar. You got to enter into the space. You have to respond. And then you'll see. The one who has ears, let them hear. Father, Father, I'm overwhelmed with you. Thank you that you confuse the wise and you hide the secrets of the kingdom and the foolish things. Thank you that the kingdom of heaven was given to little children. And you force us to learn what that means by looking at them. Thank you that the kingdom of heaven is given to the poor and the mourners and the humble and the persecuted. Thank you that it's in the foolish places of the world when we finally enter in, we see it is given to us the mysteries of your good news. Jesus, I pray for anyone here who still stands at a distance, whether for the first time or whether they've said yes before, but now they're just confused and unsure. I pray for them right now. And I pray by the power of your Holy Spirit that you would encourage them to take a step and to say yes and to walk back in, to enter back into the space where they are stripped away of their pride, where they are stripped away of their answers, where they are left with nothing but questions and in that space, they can truly encounter you. The Jewish carpenter who had a very short ministry, who died utterly alone, and from that story has emerged an army of followers ready to die for you at this very moment, ready to give you everything if you would just but ask. 
What a crazy story. What a crazy magic seed. Lord, encourage people to take that step, not on their terms, but on your terms. They have to enter into your space. You've already come to them. You came as Jesus. Now they must come to you. They must open their hands and let you love them. If that's you, whatever's in your hands right now, just drop it. It's not important. It's not worth it. There's life in the name of Jesus. And it's open to you right now. Whether for the first time or the hundredth time, there is life in the name of Jesus. And it's open to you right now. Enter back in. Lord, we pray for tables as you're stirring us in our vision and as you're calling us to this next season. Would seeds be planted inefficiently? Would they just be chucked? And would you produce fruit utterly disproportionate to where the seeds land? Raise up leaders, raise up hosts, Jesus, we praise you. Meet us in this moment. Amen. Thanks again for tuning in to this week's sermon. To find out more about the mission and ministry of Hope Brooklyn, details about Sunday worship and brunch, to subscribe to our other podcasts and lots more, visit us online at www.hopebrooklyn.org.